Support for Long Form this week comes from listening. If you've ever had to rip through a huge pile of academic papers, you know how painful it can be to spend all that time staring at a piece of paper. Listening makes it really simple to convert anything you have to read into spoken words that you can enjoy on the go. Uses AI to generate realistic voices that sound like actual human beings. Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Hello. Welcome to the Longform Podcast. I'm Aaron Lammer. Remotely through a Zoom connection, it's Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Hey, you guys. Hey, Aaron. Nice to see you virtually. Hey. Hey. Uh, it's wonderful to see you both. Uh, a great show for you this week. I talked to Reggie Ugwu, who is a arts reporter for the New York Times. Uh, in a strange meta twist, he wrote a profile of Francis and the Lights, which is the musical project I've been part of. So we had talked once before. I was curious because that was one of the only uh, me getting interviewed uh, processes in my life, how that all worked. So I wanted to talk to him about it. He also actually writes a lot about podcasters now. So um, if you've read a profile in the New York Times of a podcast you listen to, very likely uh, Reggie wrote that. Um I thought this stuff was pretty interesting to cover. It's pretty different than some of the like celebrity profiling that um, magazines, uh, a lot of the people who who come on the show who've worked for magazines start off with. And we talked about that and a lot more. I love those podcast pieces you've been doing. It's, it's, uh, it's wonderful to see like these beautiful uh, portrait photography of these podcasters in the New York Times it makes me very happy. You, you are a known fan of podcasting, Max. I like, po- I'm a fan of podcasting. That's true. I'm a fan of podcasting and of podcasters like the two of you. I'm a fan of newsletters. Uh, they're digestible. They're lightweight. Uh, you can deliver it to thousands and thousands of people without spending a lot of money with MailChimp. Uh, they are a tried and true trusted source for your email newsletter. I know that they've been doing this for a long time because they've been supporting the show for a long time and this show has been on for a long time. So thank you to MailChimp for all their support. If you're thinking about signing up for a newsletter, I mean, signing up to do your own newsletter, do it with MailChimp. I feel like these intros are all just becoming different ways of us saying that we're very old. Yeah, uh, that's. I think that's life for the rest of our, our life. <laughs> also, perhaps the audience needs no reminding. <laughs> <laughs> and now here's Aaron with Reggie Ugu. Welcome, Reggie Ugu. Hello. Reggie, I already spoke to you one time before for like an hour. Uh, so I feel very comfortable, but I'll save that story till uh, later in the podcast because I didn't actually get to ask you very much about yourself during that phone call. No, I, w- I was interviewing you. Tables were turned. The tables were turned. So I'm interested in where you're from, how you got into uh, writing online in the first place. Yeah, I grew up in Houston, 
kind of moved around a little bit, but mostly in, in Houston. And I went to school at UT in Austin. Um, I actually ended up graduating in journalism. So my degree is in journalism, but originally I had gone to study pharmacy, actually. Mm. And so I didn't have any, really an idea of what I wanted to do until a little bit later on. And it was kind of an accident, really. I'm going to say that I think we're at episode 400-ish, and uh, you're the first prospective pharmacist <laughs> uh, I've spoken to. So like, what attracts someone to pharmacy? Um, <laughs> what attracts someone? Uh, immigrant parents uh, attract someone. Um, <laughs> I'm Nigerian. My parents are both immigrants, and uh, it was kind of a very sort of high-achieving household and, you know, from the time I was a kid, I thought a lot about what my career was going to be. And I wanted to do something that was going to be prestigious and lucrative. And we had family friends who were pharmacists. And I mm. was kind of into the sciences. And so I thought, oh, I could do this pharmacy thing. The program is six years, so it's two years shorter than medical school. And so I was like, oh, I'll do this. I'll get out at like 24. I'll have a good job. I'll make some good money. And um, the only problem was that I, I hated I hated pharmacy. I, <laughs> I, hated, I hated being in the lab. I hated the sort of the mathematical components of it. And so that kind of blew up in my face about halfway through college. What, uh, what attracted you to, to switching to journalism? Um, well... I kind of it was back at square one. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was had kind of a crisis of conscience, and uh, but I had always been a writer. I had been writing since I was like very small, and had always been pretty good at it. And had always had teachers that were really supportive and encouraging all throughout school. But I never thought of it as like a potential career. I didn't know what that was or what that would be. Um, it seemed totally fanciful. But around that same time that I was having sort of a breakdown and contemplating going to pharmacy school, I had become, a few different things happened. One, I was reading our student newspaper at, at UT, the Daily Texan, which was a really strong student newspaper at the time. And uh, I was super obsessed with GQ magazine. And this was 2005, 2006. So this was like when Andy Ward was there and like Dan Fearman, people like that. And so I had become really into it and was reading every issue cover to cover and just getting exposed to people like John Jeremiah Sullivan, George Saunders, Chris Heath. And that stuff was like really kind of blowing my mind. And so I was thinking about what do I really want to do? And I knew that I could write and I was reading this magazine and I was reading the student newspaper and I started to think that maybe I could try something like journalism. And it just so happened that they were hiring at the student newspaper, at the Daily Texan. At that time, they had a columnist opening. And so I just kind of walked into the basement of the communications building, which is where it was run out of. And somehow I ended up getting hired, even though I didn't have any kind of experience or eclipse or anything really. What were your uh, first forays into uh, columning like? Oh, man. <laughs> it was really challenging. It would be, uh, 
the column didn't end up being like a super great, great fit for me. But I remember that it was always an issue because, you know, this was the Bush era and there was like warrantless wiretapping going on and, and Dick Cheney was shooting people in the face. And my parents are news junkies. We always had like CNN and MSNBC on in the house. And so those were the kinds of things that I was gravitating to. I had some idea that I was going to contribute to the national discourse. And my editors were always like, why don't you look at what's actually happening on campus or in Austin even? I never could quite calibrate that right. Where where did you end up on the other side of uh, college? So I ended up graduating in the two years that I had left of my undergraduate. And uh, I got an internship with Time Inc. Time Inc. was doing, they had a, a summer internship program and they were putting people up in Columbia actually. So that right after school in 2008, I spent summer in New York and I was placed at Money Magazine. And so I did that. But, you know, this was 2008. So it was the height of the recession and uh, the news business, of course, was hit especially hard. And there was a hiring freeze throughout timing. So we all, our whole internship class knew that we were not going to be getting jobs so that summer, that was kind of hanging over my head. And I had some kind of vague notion that, you know, I could like knock on doors or like somehow network or find my a job somewhere. But I didn't really know where to start. I didn't know anyone at all. I had no connections. And so I ended up going back home to Houston and was actually underemployed in Houston for a year before coming back to New York and trying again. What worked uh, time to? Um, <laughs> so my parents both worked at Houston Community College and they had gotten me this job as a communications specialist, I think is what it was. And basically I was like writing emails and web copy for like the head of communications at uh, this branch of Houston Community College. But um, they had this program where they were inviting special speakers to speak at different branches. And Houston Community College is a huge network of schools and there was one branch that had someone coming down from Frontline, and it was um, Marcella Gaviria, who is a producer for this company, Rain Media, that makes Frontline documentaries for PBS. And having gone to journalism school, I, I knew a lot about Frontline and, and how respected it was. And so I like took a day off or took a half day or something and ended up and drove over to where this woman was speaking in like an hour away from the ranch that I actually worked at. And that gave her this like dinky business card that I had printed up <laughs> advertising my freelance services and, uh, and stayed in touch with her. And, you know, a few months later, some, like I got it, I got an email from somebody asking me if I was interested in this program. And I, I found out later that, um, she had a bit of a reputation for picking up strays <laughs> when I showed up to their offices in, in the Upper West Side with zero documentary experience. Like, you know, who, what is this kid doing here? But yeah, so I, I got that internship and I was working on some frontline documentaries, um, one about the Haiti earthquake. And then I had like a couple of other odd jobs where I, I was able to build up and cobble together enough freelance writing gigs to pay my rent. I, I didn't fancy myself uh, an arts writer. I think I still had some notion of 
you know, wanting to be like a really serious, hard-hitting journalist. I wanted to be like a Lowell Bergman or Alex Kotlowitz or somebody like that and cover like national news of national import. But um, I was really obsessed with music all throughout college. And yeah, that music blogging scene was really influential on me. And I had a music blog in school and I had another blog that I started doing with a friend after school. And I was just kind of drawn to it. It's one of those things, having left the pharmacy track, I was determined to do something that I was passionate about and that I knew that I wasn't going to get bored with. And music really felt that bill. So, yeah, it also just seemed like a fun way to spend your 20s. Yeah. Going to shows and stuff. It's interesting that you reference that kind of early music blogging era and its influence because other than the memory of a few people between your age and my age, like you could kind of forget Mm. that there was ever this like hyper influential MP3 blogging world. But you wrote that story for BuzzFeed about the people who make uh, playlists professionally for Spotify and Apple Music. I'm not saying that everyone who had an MP3 blog uh, is now currently employed (laughs) in such a venture, but in some ways it is sort of the spiritual descendant of that stuff. And there is still this kind of unseen hand pulling the levers. Tell me about sort of what drew you to that story. Yeah, no, that's, I think you're, you're exactly right. And some of the people in that story had been bloggers. And um, I think one of them was at Stereo Gum, which Stereo Gum was the main blog that I was obsessed with in, in college. Yeah, I was interested in kind of the human element of these playlists. Because with the rise of Spotify and all these other streaming services, playlists had become the unit. It wasn't as much about the al- albums anymore or they weren't as central to the conversation and they weren't as influential if you wanted to have a hit and you needed to be on a a playlist and i you know just the idea that there were people that there were human beings in the machine who were making these decisions was really fascinating to me especially because they're totally um obscured you have no idea where this stuff comes from or how it gets here or how it's why it's organized the way that it is. And so the idea of like going in and and being able to put a face or a personality to that process was really interesting to me. Support for Long Form This Week comes from listening. If you find yourself behind the eight ball needing to read a bunch of academic papers or journals or any kind of dense reading material, you might make your life a lot easier by checking out listening. It takes anything, articles, books, PDFs, and turns the text into spoken word that you can absorb no matter what you're doing. The app has a lifelike AI voices complete with emotion and intonation that creates a realistic and pleasant listening experience. So I had to go into the city for some meetings. I needed to review some PDFs, threw them in there, listened to them on the way. It was both pleasant and I kind of forgot that I wasn't like listening to a professionally done audiobook or something like very quickly. 
The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now, normally you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Fox Creative. This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu-series, Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. I'm Abby Ayers, a 37-year-old mom from Utah who found herself running across the Manhattan Bridge in my first race ever. Running Sucks celebrates women who run and the running communities that carry them across the finish line. Running helped me in so many ways postpartum. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. For every person like you, I'm telling you you belong and I'm telling you you can do it. I never thought the words would leave my mouth, but yes, I'm planning on running a marathon. <laughs> Because, like, who would have thought? Watch Running Sucks at runningsuckstheseries.com and learn more about how Team Milk is helping women runners across the country conquer their next course. So one of the things I'm curious about for you is, you know, I was just like going back through your like New York Times archive and you're actually covering podcasts pretty heavily now, mm. you cover music. How much of your own experience of listening to music or listening to a podcast or really experiencing any cultural phenomenon is future fodder for something you're going to write versus something like a, an experience that is outside of potentially being a, a future piece of writing. Yeah. I'm trying to sort of dissolve that line mm. more and more. I think I'm trying to write more in a more personal and a more direct way that expresses the things that, that captivate me with the idea being that, you know, things that are more personal I just think it makes for better writing. That's just often the case. So I'm tend to be guided by things that I'm just drawn to for whatever ineffable reason and in the hope that I can sort of tease that out or what it is that excites me about something or a person and have that translate for the reader. Is there another level necessary for you to want to write about something beyond this captivates me. Does it need to have like a hook or a like, does it need to fit some further template for it to merit like a pitching it as a story and going for it? Yeah. I mean, generally, I mean, I think earlier in my career or even a couple of years ago, I was after the big whales, you know, big names, things that are going to drive attention uh, or, or catch a lot of eyeballs by virtue of, you know, the name of the person in the story. Certainly that's an incentive that's, you know, very common in arts coverage. 
and you know, then there's you, you want to play off the new cycle. That's always a factor. You know what what's coming out. So that stuff is always there. Like that's kind of like the uh, the template. But I think for me, it's more interesting if I can bring something that's a little bit more personal or connect on a more human level. I think the work is better, and I think. Yeah, I just think you can sense it in the story if it's coming from a more honest, authentic place. It feels a little bit like um, certain kinds of art are also just like easier or harder to write about. Mm. Like, I actually think podcasts are kind of difficult to write about. Like, mm. when I was reading through a bunch of podcasts you've written about, I was just thinking about like how hard it is to just describe a, a podcast mm. in a sentence or two. Yeah. Well, because they're an individual podcast, is just it changes so much. It, I feel like it's more, the better way to look at it is the person behind the podcast. And that's kind of how I've been covering it so far. I've only been writing about it since this year, maybe not even the full year. But um, yeah, I'm interested in really in the personalities and the creators behind it. And um, I think if you connect with the host or creator of a show, then, then there's a pretty good chance that you'll be down with what they have to say. But you're right. It's like I, I wrote about the Reply All guys, and um, you can't really describe the show Reply All. Like it doesn't fit any neat definition. Um, but you can talk about PJ and Alex and their dynamic on the show and the kinds of things that they tend to gravitate toward. It seems like, you know, in terms of what you said about um, covering the people it seems like you need to spend a pretty good amount of time to write these things. Like a lot of the experiences that you write about in these stories, it seems like this isn't like a uh, 30 minute phone call kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's been one of my favorite things about writing about podcasters is they're just generally more accessible (laughs) than like uh, (laughs) Amy Adams or Brad Pitt or whatever. And Yeah. yeah, for me, like that's amazing to be able to, dig in to a person's story at a, in some more depth and try to bring that to life. So yeah, with Rishikesh Herway, I interviewed him three times and it was like two hours or more each time. I had like seven hours of, of tape and that was, that was wonderful to be able to kind of take in the full story. And then, and then of course you have to whittle it down, especially at the newspaper, but that's one of my favorite things about writing about podcasts. When you're asking for that kind of time, like, do you say, hey, you know, could we talk for, say, eight hours <laughs> on the phone? Like, I, I, how are these things no. ne- negotiated? Like, <laughs> That was kind of a best case scenario where he was into it. He was into it after yeah. the first interview. And so we just kept going. No, I mean, I generally, I try to, I mean, this, I feel like this, I, I got into to journalism after social media had already popped off and after, you know, publicists had sort of turned off the tap in terms of access to celebrity profiles and that kind of thing. And uh, so it's not uncommon, you know, if you're interviewing a big celebrity for them to offer you 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour, it's like considered generous. If I'm writing a profile of someone, I try to have at least like a 90 minutes and, you know, a follow-up or something, you know. And so I... Generally, if I'm, that's what I start with is like, I think we need 90 minutes. And I think we need multiple conversations. And um, mm. if I have that, then that's usually, I can usually make something with it. 
And are you using the first one of those conversations to search out something thematic that can sort of unify the story that you're doing? Yeah. And that's, yeah. So that's exactly why you want multiple conversations because if you, all the pressure is on one interaction. It, I find it generally to be uh, too much to get anywhere of, of real depth. So in the first one, you're hopefully building up a rapport. You're hopefully listening to what the person is saying and picking up on different threads and connections that you can then go back and, and revisit in, um, in more depth in the follow-up. And how many like other people are you talking to when you're putting these together other than the, like, the subject of the story? I mean, it, it varies. You know, sometimes, yeah, I mean, it could be anywhere from two people to eight other people, you know. So once you've identified, like, what you think the the core themes of the story are, then you can kind of search for the person in that person's life who can speak to that particular aspect. Are there people you encounter who don't want to let you into their lives in that way? Sure, yeah. (laughs) And then... (laughs) And you're kind of stuck. You're kind of trying to pull something out of your ass. That yeah, I mean that happens. You know, working for a newspaper, I don't generally have like super generous timelines. You know, if I was like a features writer at a magazine or something, and you know, I have uh, like a few months to bring home this big trophy, that's one thing. But given the time pressures that I'm usually working within. If I can get to that level of intimacy sooner rather than later, that's great. That's what you want. So you interviewed me because you were writing a profile of Francis and the Lights. Well, it was a profile of Francis Farewell Starlight, who Mm -hmm. was the uh, main person behind Francis and the Lights. Mm -hmm. And that's something I've been a part of for many, many years, like almost uh, half my life at this point. Um, But... uh, I was kind of amazed like how much time you dedicated to that story. Mm. Like you were like out there, like at Francis's like weird little house yeah. for multiple days. Like how, how do you pull something like that off? Yeah. Like within that newspaper timeline. Yeah. Well, that one was a bit of that one. I kind of had going on the back burner while I was doing other, other stories. So I was able to steal away mm. some, some time to work on it, but you know, since since those days of reading all those features writers in GQ, like I've had this idea of in-depth celebrity profile or artist profile where you do get to spend a real amount of time um, with someone. And for multiple reasons, including just the changing nature of the industry that I was talking about earlier, that hadn't really been my experience. And I still feel like I haven't really done many things like that. But, um, and then also just talking to someone like outside of a promotion cycle, you know, when they're not seeing, you know, they're not doing a bunch of junkets and giving a bunch of canned answers. It's something that I've been trying to do for a long time. And Francis was somebody who I had been interested in forever. and, And I had like a personal connection to his music and, I was just kind of fascinated by him as a character and and he would put out songs or he would pop up on the Kanye album or the Drake album and I would like 
shoot an email to his manager um, asking if he was interested in an interview and, and, and get turned down. I got turned down multiple times because Francis doesn't really do interviews. And so I can't remember what the inciting event was, if he had put something out or... This is uh, this is news to me, by the way. I was unaware that we had uh, turned down previous New York Times. Oh. <laughs> well, go on, go on, go I had this idea across different publications. Um, but anyway, I reached out and I got a yes. And so I just kind of gave his manager my total blue sky scenario, what I just described to you of like, I want to spend three days and I want, you know, multiple interviews. And then he said, yeah. <laughs> and so, uh, and so, yeah, I went out and, and, and did that. And, um, cause I felt like, yeah, I had been chasing this particular kind of nonfiction writer experience and, and to be able to do that with a, an artist that a, I personally connected with and B hadn't really told their story before, um, was just really gratifying. It was, uh, uh, it was a trip for me when it came out because um, one of the themes of the story is depression mm. and sort of retreat from uh, life, public life. And some of the people I know were surprised by it and were like, well, why did they write about that? Mm. And then I was like, oh, like uh, Reggie actually has like spent a lot more time with this person you know, recently than like a lot of these people who are sort of surprised. And mm. it, it was something I hadn't like thought of about like writing about, you know, artists in this way is that you're actually like probably have a better idea what's up with them a lot of times than like, you know, people on the fringes of their family. <laughs> yeah, I think I didn't really know what I was going to get, right? Because he hadn't been talking. But because we, we, I, I was able to spend more time with him you know, we were able to connect on a more personal level and talk about really his, I mean, his life and what it had meant to, what it had cost him to kind of pursue this, this vision that he had for himself as an artist and all the frustrations that he had experienced and how expectation had met with reality. And that to me is, again, like, that's kind of what I'm looking for. You know, I, I find that, you know, even though I write, talk to celebrities or popular artists, like I'm not all that interested in, in, in celebrity. Like I'm pretty uninterested in, in celebrity, but I'm really interested in creativity. I'm really interested in how it expresses itself in a person's work and how that changes over time. I'm interested in, in the question of generally like what it takes to live an authentic and meaningful life just as a person. And so if I can get at those things in a story or in a profile, like that's kind of what I'm looking for. So how long have you been at the New York Times? It's been three years now. Three years. Okay. I'm trying to think of like the last few big pieces you've done. So you did like the piece about the Criterion Collection and you did a big piece about Chadwick Boseman. That was a, the obituary for Chadwick Boseman. Is that your first obituary? No, well, we I did uh, I did an obituary for Robert Johnson actually as a part uh-huh. of the series called Overlooked that the time okay, yes, 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 yes. Um, So that was my second obituary. What is it like being in the role of framing someone's legacy 
in that way and writing on that sort of scale. Yeah. I mean, it's extremely high pressure situation because, you know, it has to be, especially with someone like Chadwick, where it was just an utter surprise. So you have to kind of turn it around overnight. You know, obviously people, we write certain obituaries in advance, which is a bit of a different thing. But in that scenario, you know, I had profiled him. I had gone out and talked to him in Los Angeles a year or two before that. And so I had that experience to go on. I went back to some of the notes that I had taken from that interview. It's just, it's, I would, it's kind of just a condensed, concentrated version of a profile. I think what it has in common with a profile, or at least how I think about a profile, is you're trying to convey what was unique or special or essential about a person. And you want to do that in a way that is clear and illuminating for the reader and also does justice to the individual and, um, you know, frankly, to their families. You know, I, I wanted to convey what he meant to audiences, especially given his role in, in Black Panther. And I kind of, you know, when I wrote that profile, he had this incredible run where he played all of these larger than life figures. So Third Good Marshall, Jackie Robinson, James Brown, and then T'Challa in, in, in Black Panther. I mean, it's just an absurd murderer's row of larger than life figures. And so I was trying to understand what drives a person to a career like that and what enables them to withstand a career like that. And so I think with the obituary, I was trying to kind of do that again, but again, in a more concentrated way to show, you know, this person that you know from these larger than life roles, you know, here's where he came from. Here is what influence his family had on him. Here is how he thought about his work and what it meant. And to just kind of lay that out in a clear and coherent way. You um, wrote this story about uh, the guy who runs the Criterion Collection. I think you co-wrote it, actually. Yeah, I wrote it with Kyle Buchanan. It came out like uh, shortly after the Black Lives Matter protests uh, started to become a big part of uh, what was happening in America and in the news cycle. I'm curious, like, is that a piece that's in the works and then lands amidst a specific uh, backdrop? Or is that something that's like being commissioned in real time along that news cycle and movement? How do those two things interact? Yeah, no, it's a good question. It's the former. Um, that piece had was a very long gestating piece. Um, I think Kyle Buchanan initially had the idea to look into the Criterion Collection, um, which is this sort of highly prestigious body of films, which I like a lot and a lot of film buffs really revere, only had uh, four African-American filmmakers in it out of... I think over a thousand films. And Kyle Buchanan had been thinking about this for, I think a couple of years. I think he started reporting it in like 2018 or something like that. And then, and then I didn't come on board until a little bit later, but I came on board in fall of 2019. 
And um, we had been kind of kicking around ideas about how to tackle it and talking to people here and there over the course of doing other stories. And, um, and then it just so happened that we were in the middle of this huge um, reckoning over racism in all different sectors of society when, when, when it happened to drop. What was the summer of that reckoning like working at the New York Times? And how did you think about it as, as a reporter? Man, um, I mean, I thought of it first as a person, you know, as a black person. It was, it was pretty tough to grapple with just on a day-to-day emotional level. And then trying to kind of metabolize that into journalism is, is tricky because you want to do things to a certain standard and you want to do things for the right reasons. And, you know, like I, in general, I'm a little bit allergic to being super reactive with the stories that I write. Um, I try to be a little bit more intentional about saying something that I really need to say or that I think needs to be said. So I think that story, I was in that way, I was grateful to be working on that um, at that time because I think it was, I hope that it started a conversation and um, was something that people could point to and look at and rethink how race is, you know, and how, how white privilege is the, uh, the water that a lot of these cultural institutions are submerged in. And now it's just kind of an invisible force that we kind of take for granted, um, but actually is a force and has consequences for everyone, not just black people, but for everyone. And so, yeah, I was, I was glad to be able to channel some of those emotions and, and some of the ideas that I had been kicking around in my head into that piece. What excites you going forward? Uh, where do you go from here? Well, I'm working on a book. Uh, <laughs> so that's in, in a literal sense. That's something that is hopefully coming up in the future. I'm working on a, on a narrative nonfiction book about Black filmmakers, young Black filmmakers, and um, what well, looks to be a, a historic era in, in Black film and Black storytelling in the last five years. And then with my writing in the Times, I'm trying to write stories that feel more personal and um, that can kind of get at some of these deeper questions that I was talking about earlier. You know, um, I find myself kind of gravitated to those questions of what it takes to live authentically and be creative and you know, I'm interested in how people respond to suffering and, and loss and randomness and how they make sense of or find meaning in those things. So <laughs> if I can do that and, and write about podcasts or write about music or write about movies and hopefully engage people and get them to think and dial in, then I'm pretty happy. Reggie, thank you so much uh, for doing this interview. 
No, it's a pleasure. I, I love this podcast and I'm a long time listener, so it's a real honor. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Thanks very much to Reggie. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, our intern, Susan Peterson, the great sponsors who bring you this show, like MailChimp. We'll be back next week. Support for Long Form this week came from Listening. Listening makes it easy to convert written text to pleasant audio tracks you can take in no matter what you're doing. It offers AI voices that manage to express emotion and correctly pronounce complicated technical terms, all while sounding like actual human beings, not robots. The Listening app might just transform how you consume reading material, and you can give it a shot for yourself risk-free Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout. Listening. Your life just got a lot easier. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon, taking place in Savannah, Georgia, on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.